Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrew, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives. I think some people can just be very swayed by their own biases and we all have to be aware of our own biases. So if you have a political um, sway towards the party that is saying one thing, like challenge yourself enough to realize I am bent towards this way. Am I just reinforcing what I want to believe or what I think is true now? Or am I really looking at this from like a lens of unbiased? Hey everybody. Today on the pod, we are joined by none other than the fierce and beautiful and lovely Shadley Kensrue, my wife. Shadley is a former level one trauma ICU nurse and is currently the school nurse for a large high school. In our conversation, Shadley talks a bit about the current pandemic and what we can all be doing to get us out of this sooner. She shares some of what she's learned in her various nursing roles, including her thoughts on how we view death and how we empathize with those different than us. We discuss motherhood from a few different angles, and Shadley shares a bit of advice on how to deal with being married to someone as difficult as I can be at times. It was such an honor to get to go deep with this amazing woman, and there's even a few things I learned that I hadn't known before. Let's dive in. This is a unique one. I'm here with my lovely wife, Shadley. And we're going to talk about the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we're going to start, like we always start, asking. You don't talk like this to other people. <laughs> you, bring out, you bring out the best of me. Okay. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, I hope they're ready for this. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Okay. So we're going to start like we always start. I'm going to ask you what gave you a sense of deep wonder when you were a kid. So I knew you were going to ask me this question. I don't think it's fair that I wasn't allowed to like verbally process it with you. Because it's better on the first try. Okay. So when you said that, and I don't know if it's just because we were watching the show last or the other night. Lodge, show? Lodge 45. 49. 49. I always say 45. Lodge 49. That's the best. We it's really the, love gr- it. the greatest show. Anyway, it made me think about this and then you asked me this question. Okay. Okay. So as a kid, I think I was not an avid reader and it was always hard for me to like finish books that I started mm-hmm. and never enjoyed reading. I think it's great. We um, cheated our children to think that it's a treat because it was always like a task for me. Anyway. I read The Boxcar Children, mm-hmm. and it was like the first book series, possibly the only book series that I ever read, like, avidly. Like when you were little. Yeah, when I was little. Maybe like, I don't know, third grade. But I always thought, like, it would be so cool to have to, like, learn, like, live on your own somewhere, find a place to live, Mm. make a little home for yourself somewhere. And even prior to... I don't know the plot of that, those stories. They live in a boxcar. Oh, okay. So they, it's a, it's a family of 
a family. The parents die, I think. But there's, I think... That's how all the good stories start. Yep. All the good stories start that way. Four kids ranging from, I think, like age 12 to like a toddler. And so they decide instead of going to an orphanage, they're going to run away. Okay. And they find an old boxcar out in the woods. And so they decide they're going to live in this boxcar and they talk about like going to the dump and they find like old dishes that people had thrown away and they mm. would bring them back and wash them and they'd like build a little shelf with their dishes and then they would go out and they would find a discarded pot and they'd bring it back and now they had a pot and then they started like the older kids were picking cherries for money and they'd go buy a gallon of milk and they would mm-hmm. tie a rope around the milk and I like I can see you loving this. Yeah. Right. Like they would float it in like the brook of the stream like to keep it cold Mm -hmm. without a refrigerator and i was like that is so cool and even before reading those books i grew up in utah as you know in like a very small town and we used to go (laughs) we used to just go out to the woods and run around run around but i was always building like a, a house like i was always building like some kind of place where i could live by myself and like find things to live off of and find things to cook and eat and i think that's why i like camping so much now interesting and we just finished watching alone alone which is a series like a show about people it's like survivor but for real kind of they're just Mm -hmm. all by themselves and living off the land and 10 items yeah they're basically all getting pulled out for medical checks because they're losing so much weight but it's they're in, they're in, what, 72 days or something? Yeah, I think Hopefully it ended I'm not giving like in the... Way. This is season six we just watched. We haven't watched the other ones, but yeah, so there's, you have a, a drive to survive, to, uh, yeah. I think the wonder though is like coming from like the ability of yourself to... Can you do it? Yeah. Yeah. To survive, like, can, can you figure it out? I feel like you approach your whole life a little bit that way too. <laughs> well, like I like to punish myself and just to see if I'm going to survive. You married me. So. <laughs> I did marry you. Uh, you didn't true. know quite how difficult that would be at the time. To I be did fair. not. But you could sense I it. I do think. know now. Mm-hmm. It's my own little game of survivor. Yes. Um, that's good. No one's ever said that. I like that. So... You are a nurse, registered nurse, mm-hmm. um, and I want to know why you did that. Everybody wants to know, why did you become a nurse? So, I became a nurse after failing at other things. That's not true. It's true. However, let me just, let me say that it, I didn't know it at the time, but it started when I was in third grade. There's. Oh, Yeah. And my school, my elementary school was getting rid of all their textbooks or some textbooks. I don't know what was happening, but I remember leaving school one day and they had all these textbooks out in the hallways and on the ground outside the school. And they were telling kids like, Hey, if you guys want any of these, you can take them. And I came across a like health book, which was probably a little above my like maturity level and reading level. But I remember picking it up and being like, this is cool. Like, body stuff and it was was super cool and I remember taking it home and sitting on the floor in my bedroom and just like 
flipping pages and just be, I wanted to like suck it all up into my brain. It was very, very interesting to me. So I think that started what I thought was me like wanting to become a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I got into high school and I wasn't getting fantastic grades, I kind of just gave up on that. Like only, you know, people that get straight A's and, go to Ivy League schools or four-year schools are going to become physicians. So I gave up on that and I did <laughs> I did a couple of really funny things. I thought I was going to be a fashion designer. Mm-hmm. That didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got through like my first semester of art and was like, yeah, I'm not good at this. This is not going <laughs> to go well. <laughs> Even though I really liked it. Um, and then I was like, well, I've always enjoyed children. And so I thought, Okay, I'll do like, I'll do um, uh, a degree in uh, liberal arts and become a school teacher. Mm-hmm. But but I I went uh, I did a few classes for that. I took child development and all that stuff, and did some like observation hours in a classroom and decided like if I'm going to have my own kids, I don't <laughs> think that I can have my own kids. And then be with other people's kids all day and be... That's good self-awareness, because I think some people definitely can. Yeah, no, some some people people do it great. Look at Kyle Dugan. That guy owns it. (laughs) Hi, Kyle, if you're listening. You're the best. (laughs) Best teacher ever. Um, Yeah, so that didn't work out. And then I ended up meeting... And I always had this impression that nurses... Yeah, talk about this. This is helpful for people. The reason I, you know when I decided not to pursue becoming a physician and going to med school, I never even thought about being a nurse because I think there was, I don't think it's it's as predominant as it is, as it was back then, but there was this notion that like nurses were, I don't know, butt wipers and vomit cleaner uppers. Which they do. They do do that, but that is not the extent of what a nurse is. I only say that because that's hard work too. Super hard work. You get used to it. But um, I remember meeting a nurse who was a ICU nurse and being like, holy crap, you do all that stuff? Like, you are smart. You have autonomy. You are doing all this cool stuff. Like, I never even thought that was a possibility. And I didn't think I wanted to be an ICU nurse, but I actually thought I wanted to be like a pediatric nurse to mesh like love of children and nursing. Um, and I also liked the idea of doing something like choosing a career that I knew, I knew when I chose it, that it could do a lot of different things all with the heart behind it of like helping people. Mm. So if I could get that education behind me, I could do a variety of things. What I thought I was going to do with it was, as you know, I was going to like volunteer for not volunteer work, work for like um, international medical relief agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that, I, that was always something I really wanted to do, but it didn't go that way. Um, but it's turned out to be just as exciting. Which you still might do in the future. I still might do in the future. I hope to one day do that in the future, but, um, so you ended up doing ICU stuff. Yes. Yeah, so I became an ICU nurse at the level one trauma center in orange County, which, what does that mean? So level one trauma means it's the highest level of acuity. So meaning like the sickest people, the people that are the most hurt get 
transported to that hospital. And we're fortunate enough to have one of the best UCI Medical Center here in Orange County. And so as a new graduate nurse, I got a job there um, in the surgical trauma ICU. And um, I had a fantastic preceptor who scared the crap out of me in the beginning (laughs) and ended up becoming my very good friend who I'm still friends with now. That was back in 2006. And um, I learned so much that I feel like was critical foundational um skills not just in like nursing skills but like um staying calm under like intense pressure and um things that have just really like served me well in other facets of nursing so because you're in that position you're basically keeping people alive who are very precariously alive to begin with correct and the doctors are coming around every once in a while and yeah. Kind of checking out, but, but you are. Yeah. I don't think people realize like when you watch medical shows like Grey's Anatomy or something, all the things that those doctors are doing in the shows, that's your doctor's not there doing that stuff. The, that's nurses doing those things, those procedures. Sometimes you'll get a doc, you know, they have to do th- more in- intensive things like, you know, doing a spinal puncture, or, um, I don't know, doing a really gnarly, like wound washout you know, something like that where you need multiple people and equipment. But most of the time it's a bunch of nurses in there doing all that stuff. Um, so yeah, it was super good experience. Um, I took a break from nursing when the kids were super little, stayed home with them. That was, um, fantastic. And then I went back and worked in the ICU at a different hospital for a while and then transitioned to a very unique role, one that I did out of convenience. Um, I became a school nurse four years ago mm-hmm. and what was supposed to be just a job that would be easy for a family has turned into something I'm super passionate about as it's like a very, um, cool way to deliver health and wellness to children and families and the community as a whole as a whole and be involved in, um, the school staff lives and um being I mean I feel like you you didn't really know what you're getting into like what no I had no idea I literally thought I don't know if anybody's seen that TikTok video that went viral everywhere you probably didn't see it I don't know a lot of people have seen it and been like oh my gosh have you seen this is this real there's a TikTok video with um someone pretending to be a school nurse and they're like on the phone and they're eating an apple and they're like you know no no, I can't give you anything for that. You want to, you want an ice pack for that? That's all I can do. So I was like, all right, that seems chill. I could, <laughs> I could do that knowing full well, there's no way I could just sit there and give ice packs. But I was like, this will be easy for the family because you're gone on tour. And when you're gone, it's really hard to work weekends and holidays and the 12 hour shifts in the hospital. So it seemed like a, a reasonable thing to try. And I thought, you know what, I'll try it. You can be a school nurse in the state of California for five years before you have to get an actual school nurse credential. So I thought, shoot, I'll try it and see how it goes. And I have been pleasantly surprised. It's much more um, intense than I thought. And I've been able to use the skills that I learned back, like in critical care to help with like emergency planning at schools and public health things right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And so I've been fortunate enough to help with a, um, a school nurse task force to, to help with reopening schools and figure out all the 
healthcare guidelines that have to go into that. So Which has been a ton of work. I've been watching it happen. So much work. I worked all summer, but that's okay because where else? What, what, what else were we going to do? I mean, you can only go to Southern Utah so many times. <laughs> this will be our third trip this weekend. <laughs> Shadley's grandma lives in Southern Utah, so we've been going to see her and camp a little bit. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, so you're at a like a large high school. Probably can't say the name. That I don't know if that's weird. You're at a large high school. It's what, like 2,500? 2,200 2, kids. 2,200 kids. Yeah. So that's a huge thing you're handling. Basically, like, casework for tons of people in all sorts of different kinds of situations, different health issues. I mean, we'll come back to that because I wanted to kind of skimmed over... You took some time off mm-hmm. uh, when you were, we our kids were younger, and that was like a hard thing for you to like, because you were very driven, and you love this career that you had going on. Uh, you work really hard for it, and then you're having kids, and you love your kids, and so yeah, maybe talk about a little bit like that struggle, like with as a woman, like feeling this mm-hmm. urge to. And so there's like, you have kind of a a motherly sense. There's society is saying like, this is what you should or shouldn't do. Like, how did, how'd you walk through all that? That is a very complex question. Uh, I think it's been, it's it's happened in stages. Like, like, I I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of other women who probably feel. Yeah. No, not just, not just women, I guess, but there, I think women in our culture have a, a unique pressure that they're dealing with between those two things yeah i i mean i remember even when i was still working after we had sailor our first child and feeling like i definitely felt the pull of being like how how, is this okay is this okay to still be working am i depriving her of something um so that's definitely something i think each person needs to kind of figure out it doesn't matter if you're a mom or a dad like Mm. you have to figure out how do I love my family and support them and foster their wellness uh, like a whole well-rounded wellness and to become a healthy individual in this world you know how much of that is being with them and staying home with them and then how much of that is them watching you work your butt off and I think in the beginning, what felt right for me, and I would never put this on anyone else. I, it felt like I needed to stay home with the kids. I mean, we had, we had three kids age four and under. Mm -hmm. It's not like they were super spread out. Like they were all at home. Um, that would have been a lot for them to have not, you know, have someone there every day or three days a week for 12 hours a day while you were on tour. So, um, it, it it was a good choice for me, but I did miss it. It was really hard for me. It was like an identity issue that I had to work through of being like a stay-at-home mom. I really enjoyed it. What? No. Oh. <laughs> you gave me a look. No, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Oh, okay. It's funny because you know, I mean, people don't know, but you know, I'm like very, I like organization. I like schedules. Yeah, small children are not good for that. No, it was, you know what it was though? I don't know if you remember. Do you remember me making those like daily schedule sheets? Like it, I needed some kind of like routine. Yes. 
Oh yeah, I do remember that. But I made this thing in like Excel and it, I input every morning. I would like write in my plan for the day. I had like written in time that I'd spend like with the kids doing a craft or mm-hmm. something like I really needed. I, I craved that. So as a nurse, especially as an ICU nurse, you, you grid out your day, your, your full 12 hours that you were in the hospital is an hourly block of time. And so at the beginning of the day, you make a grid. A lot of people write them out or some people have like a little worksheet that they keep in their locker and they fill that little thing out. But you write in every single task on an hour basis. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this before. But so like every medication that's scheduled, every procedure, everything, you write it out. And then, of course, you know what's going to hit the fan here and there and it's all going to blow up in your face. But you have some kind of shit's going to hit the fan sometimes literally and sometimes not the fan sometimes lots of other things but anyway that it blows the schedule out and but having that system um i missed that like regular system so i i had things like that that i set up for myself yeah i mean because that's a you are doing a full-time job it's just a super chaotic job at that point yeah (laughs) you know like and i I think for someone like you, that that was a really smart idea to yeah, try just, to impose some sort of order on the chaos and be like, "Oh, this is all the stuff I'm accomplishing." Yeah, yeah. I can, I can see no, it. yeah. It was good to be like, "Oh, I'm I am doing things mm-hmm. and I did accomplish things." And um, I think that even happens now when we're like when we're on summer break or something, and think the days just start to blend together, and you're like, "What is happening?" I do not do well in that. I need like. I need to have a plan and know what I'm doing and accomplish things. So once the kids got older, then I started feeling like it was time for me to go back. I went back to the ICU, but it still was really hard. Like now the kids are older. So now they know what day is Christmas and what Mm -hmm. day is Thanksgiving. Whereas before we could just like celebrate Christmas on another day. And you had to go back at night. That's I know. That was bad. That That was, was very so unhelpful. when you become a nurse, you usually have to work night shift as a new nurse until a day spot opens for you. And it's, it's such a bummer. So you, you earn your stripes and you have to need on day shift. But like me, I, I stepped out of the field for four years, three years, and then went back. And so I had no seniority. I had to start at the beginning. So I was back on night shift again. It was real rough. Um, yeah, we had just moved back down from Seattle, mm-hmm. and like everything was chaotic, and you were working nights, and it sucked. It was the worst. It sucked real bad. But we survived. We did. Got back on a day shift, and still, even once I was on day shift, it was super hard. Like, you know, I was running like on a break to like catch a little bit of sailor soccer game or something on a Saturday. It mm-hmm. just, it's so hard. So um, I ended up meeting a. Um, school nurse and she convinced me to come like follow her for a day and see what she did and I was like oh this is great I could do this so I went for it Yasmin one of the patrons of the show was asking I've heard that it's a common experience in the medical field for better or worse to alter one's faith like basically how do you manage in the face of consistent loss and hardships that you witness as a nurse you see that in the trauma unit in certain ways you see it in the school system in a very different way but still very heavy stuff man you can answer i mean you can answer that in a broad way like what 
How do you how do you how do you deal with that? Well, how do you <laughs> how do you deal with it on a very like surface level? Is nurses tend to be very um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We laugh at things that probably people wouldn't laugh at. Yeah, yeah, you have to. You have to callous yeah. yourself up a little bit. So we think really gross things are funny and try and make light of things. But the things that are really hard, the things that have impacted me the most, that have been the most difficult to walk with patients and families through have definitely changed me. I don't think they've altered my faith or I think they've made it stronger and deeper. I feel like... um, those hard things have made me feel more confident in the impact that human lives have on other human lives Mm -hmm. and like loving others in hard times, loving people that are, you don't even know, like, um, some of the hardest things are not even my patients. It's, it's having to give bad news to family or be there to explain really hard things to family. Um, and these are people that I've never met before. Um, but, you know, oftentimes, especially the ones that were, you know, in the ICU for multiple weeks or really, um, you know, we've got to know each other very well. Um, those are relationships that even continued past that people that would still come and check in on us and, um, follow up. But, um, so I just think it like grew my compassion for people and really made me feel like I want to love people very well. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I've seen that happening at the school nurse level as well in different ways. Like you, you end up seeing different parts of people's lives, right? Like, yeah. You know, what's cool about the school nurse thing is that, so, okay. So working in a hospital, you'd have, especially in trauma, like you'd have someone come in and it would be really intense. So anytime someone's going through that kind of life altering, I mean, it's literally the worst day of this person's life, mm-hmm. Hand, hands down, the worst day of this person's life, the worst day of this family's life. So you're not meeting them like in their prime, in their normal, like environment, they're not Mm -hmm. themselves, right? They're, they're, they're in trauma mode. They're, they're suffering. Um, what's cool about working with students at the high school is that you really get to know like who these kids are. They get to know me on a level that's like just very, um, a very casual level. Um, they come to talk to me about things that they probably don't talk to a lot of other people about. And so I get to see this really cool, intimate side of kids. And sometimes those conversations are, are some of the few conversations that they get love, Mm -hmm. whether it's somebody that has hard situation at home. So one of the cool things that's been new and transformative for me is, um, having a lot of interactions with, uh, students that might be perceived as different, or I may have had a different perception of what was going on underneath things, um, specifically with students who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. It's made 
my compassion and my like my protective side grow in that area i don't know how to yeah well i think you're having more interactions with different kinds of people than you had opportunity before before and so well and i think the focus is different right so in the icu and in the hospital you're treating like a there's something wrong that you are treating and that's the focus. Mm -hmm. And while you're addressing the person holistically and, you know, different facets of their life, you don't really get to know these other aspects of their Mm -hmm. life and their personality and what makes them who they are because you're focused on some outside thing that we're all working for the common goal of resolving that issue. Right. And with these students, um, that's not always the case. They're, they're there to talk about things. They're there just to feel accepted and to be known and to have a safe place to go. And it's made me, uh, really like grow very tender and, um, I don't know, supportive of students that are struggling to feel safe and known Mm -hmm. and figuring out who they are and stuff. So that's been a really cool part of my job. I think it's it's really cool that you've been able to, like, I don't know what other job you would have kind of the breadth or depth of, I mean, I guess there'd be other jobs like counselor, stuff like that, but not many jobs where I think you'd have that breadth and depth of connection with a lot of um, people that large chunks of society has abstracted like especially for us like growing up in in kind of evangelical settings or whatever there's like an abstraction about kinds of people and they they it's they become yeah this non-real non flesh and blood mm-hmm. person um i mean everyone is an abstraction at some level to, to you until you're face to face with them but like the more you can grow your interactions with different types of people, the more you realize that those abstractions you had are are paper thin and they're not the real thing. And that absolutely changes the way that you see those things. I think for me touring a lot very early on, um, I was able to have some of those interactions. And so while I was still kind of in uh, like formally in a, setting or a church or whatever where those someone who was gay or something was like well that's this is what's going on them and they're just super wrong and whatever the thought was Mm -hmm. but then i was hanging out with them Mm -hmm. i was like there's a severe cognitive dissonance going on inside of me trying to hold these ideas and i love this person and i care for them and i'm trying to wrap my head around i don't Mm -hmm. know like a God who doesn't love this person or care about them in some way. And, or, I mean, you wouldn't, the, the explanation wouldn't have been that way, but I guess all that to say, like encountering people who are different than you, um, that you've had certain ideas about is so, so helpful. And I, I think it's cool that you've had so many opportunities to do that in your job. Yeah. It's been good. I feel like it's like, you think, you know, that you have it figured out. So you're like, yeah, I understand this concept. I understand this, this issue. And you think that, I don't know. I think I just thought I had it figured out. And I had this idea of like this, oh, this is what's going on. 
with xyz and it doesn't have to be the lgbtq community we can be anything like you you have this idea of like oh i understand this and i have this idea about it i have a feeling i have a a, um, a belief about it mm-hmm. um and i think the more i think being a nurse has opened me up to so many different types of people in so many different environments and in so many different circumstances that it's really deepened my love for people, all people, especially people that are different than me, mm. which has been really cool. I don't think I would have gotten that if I would have been sitting in the office somewhere, if I would have stayed in my previous jobs. Yeah, seriously, you interact with so many different people. Yep. Yeah, it's cool. Yep. I want to talk a little bit about the way that working in the ICU has changed your ideas about death and dying hmm. and prolonging of life. And, Oh man. Um, because I, I, I think that's a really important issue and one that people don't think about enough until it's kind yep. of too late and they find themselves in a lot of rough situations that you've observed. Yeah. That's a really good, no idea you were going to go there, but that I didn't know until right now. Yeah. So good. Um, yes, it's something I'm super, super passionate about. Um, and it's come from years of seeing very, um, heartbreaking, traumatic things. Um, how many people have you seen die? I've never asked you this. Do you even know? I have no idea. Like, roughly. I mean, it's definitely got to be, like, pe- just general people or people that were my own patients. Like, what? I Like, like general people. It's. I mean, it's over a hundred. Wow. I can't. I mean, I... I, that's, I mean, that's, that's... I mean, think about it. So, I worked... Yeah. I I worked five years in trauma. I worked two and a half years at the other place. I've just never really so, thought about the numbers. I've lot. seen Especially one person dad die. I watched my dad die. Yeah. But that's such a different perspective. Having yeah. seen it that many times. This is so funny. We're talking about this cause I was just talking to the kids about it in the hot tub the other night. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we'll get there in a minute. Okay. okay so how has it changed my perspective of death? It's something that I became very passionate about after seeing so many really sad situations and traumatic situations, traumatic for me as a nurse even, but let like let, traumatic for the patient, traumatic for the family. Um, and I think it comes from a lack of understanding of death and an acceptance of death as part of our life cycle. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that has happened with our culture because we've gotten so separated from death. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're no longer, you know, wheeling our dead out to the curb to be picked up. And, you know, we're not, um, 
we're not having women die in childbirth and we're not having, you know, it's, it's still happening, but the, the fraction is so much less. We're just, we're living longer. We're living healthier lives. We're, um, we're able to intervene on things that would have been a death sentence prior to now. I think because people are not conditioned to see death, understand death and and grieve death and cope with the aftermath of death. It makes people want to hold on to life so far past where we should have um, held on. Both people and their families around them. Um, I think it's mostly families. Okay. I think if you t- were to talk to a person, so this is my experience. If you talk to anyone and you ask them, hey, like, w- you know, what, where's the line for you? Like if, if, if you're, if you're on a ventilator and you, there's no good prognosis and, you know, you have a feeding tube and you know, whatever, like you're going to die, your death is imminent. Would you want those things just to keep happening and more procedures and more interventions? People don't understand that every day in the ICU, you are having to change IV sites. You are having to put tubes in places. You are having to do all this. Th- I, I mean, just this let alone people getting coded multiple times. So they're totally they're getting like and by code you're and, referring yeah. to if someone um, their heart stops beating, we come in, we do CPR. If they're not intubated, that means putting the breathing tube in. We put the breathing tube in, hook them up to a ventilator, which is the machine that does the breathing for them, um, and you know, we keep them alive, but, but we have, those things are good things. Ventilators are awesome. Medications are awesome. Procedures that we can do are so, so, so cool. But when you lose sight of like what the quality of life is after this is Mm -hmm. all said and done, what is the prognosis that we're shooting for? What are we aiming for? I think people get lost in the weeds and they just say, do everything. And it's usually coming from the family. People don't generally want that. And a lot of times what's sad is the person can't be asked anymore. No. So because the family is saying do everything, it is unless we have the proper documentation that this patient does explicitly stated, they do not want this. We have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's ethics um, teams that get involved at certain points and stuff. But generally if a, if a patient comes in and even though the medical team might know that, I mean, I, I have given CPR to people that I know full well, there's nothing good that's going to come from this. I'm breaking bones. I'm, I mean, we're doing all these things to this person and what we should be doing is we should be holding this person's hand and letting them peacefully die. But family has the hardest time doing that. I think because number one, obviously they're just grieving the loss. They don't want to lose that person and they, they're not ready to lose that person. Sometimes they haven't had a chance to say goodbye because it's something sudden. Yes. The second thing that needs to be discussed and why it needs to be discussed with people and their loved ones is that there's a, there's a sense of guilt. Mm. Like you don't want to be the person that says like, no, like don't do anything else because, Mm. and let's just let them go. Because once that person dies and you're left to think about it, I think people are worried. I'm going to like regret it. I'm going to regret not doing everything. So 
I think it's really important to have these conversations with people um, to get people comfortable with knowing what you would want and, and knowing they don't have to be, feel guilty about letting you go peacefully. So you and I have had this talk and we're ready to, to pull the plug if we need to do it. Yeah. It's but hard though. It, I mean, no, it's, it's terrible to think about, but it's also terrible to think about the alternative. Right. I mean, you know, like, yeah. Um, and I think we both know like, the burden that comes with trying to hold on to that and mm-hmm. watch all of it and, mm-hmm. it and knowing that's especially if you you know it it's not going anywhere um, it's traumatic for everyone that watches too like you have family coming in to visit these people for long periods of time even though death is imminent like i worked with a very cool nurse at uci who kind of started I don't know if she started it or if she, it was just me learning about it for the first time, but it's like no one dies alone. And this is back in like early 2000. So it, this is very common now, but you know, nurses have kind of an, a, a code that no one dies alone. So like if you don't have family and you lived alone and you don't have kids and you don't have extended family or maybe extended families out of state. Um, we're not going to let, if we know someone's going to pass away, we don't just let them pass away in a room by themselves. We go in there, we hold their hand, we talk to them, we sing to them. We, you know, that's the side of nursing people don't ever get to see. And actually that's the hardest moments Mm -hmm. that you have to be really like vulnerable and just like love these people in that last moment. But, um, I think those moments have been very impactful for me as a person. All right. We're going to briefly touch on the pandemic. Mm. Um, we're not going to weigh in cause we can do a whole show on that, but from a medical perspective, someone who is keeping up with all the latest news because just one, because you're interested and um, have like a good mind for that stuff, but you're also trying to set things up for the schools to be healthy and safe. And so you're following all the things you are friends with doctors and nurses that are currently working in hospitals, dealing with COVID patients. What are the things that you want more people to understand? Um, you see a lot of stuff online and you talk to people we've been seeing, you know, there's certain ideas that are out there and we'll be like, how does someone think this? And then we meet someone who seems very reasonable, very rational. And then they think the same thing that we're, are having a hard time understanding that someone thinks it like how, I don't know. What are the the major things that would you think would be helpful to people to understand? Oh, this is a big one. Um, okay. The first thing I would say is I think the reason there's such a, a spectrum of ideas, understanding, um, acceptance levels and, um, conspiracy theories. The reason I think it's so vast, um, is because there has not been consistent messaging from our highest levels of government in the area of public health. So, I think that 
unfortunately, like politics has been very involved in this topic. And so the voices that we have heard, and, and oftentimes the voices that are debating are not coming from the field of science and specifically not even from a public health lens. For, for instance, right now, our COVID numbers from all the hospitals have been, should be going to the CDC, which is a nonpartisan wow. established what? No, yeah, totally. But, did, but a lot they, of people, there's belief that the CDC is not, is not kosher and that they're um you know so there's again there's a lot of different conspiracy theories that are going around that are making people distrust the information they're being given so okay. and and there's you know it could be about the cdc not getting the reporting now it can be about uh people debating you know the accuracy of the the covid results like there's a lot of different things going around and what I will say, I'm not going to debate specific issues, but what I will say is <clears throat> the best thing that people can do for themselves is to, if it is coming from a political source of any kind, I'm talking about like the news, don't listen to it. Have a good, reliable public health voice that you're listening to, to get your information from on this public health issue. Right. So like you have people giving information to media sources, but then the media sources are going to spend their own bias. So I think the best way you can have accurate information is is have people. So a lot of people are on Instagram and Twitter. I love Jessica Milati Rivera. Um, she you can follow her on Instagram and on Twitter. She is an infectious disease uh uh, scientist and she has been covering COVID-19. I respect her voice very much. She st she stays very factual and level-headed. Um, there's just, there's people out there like that, that I think it, that is where every single person in this country should be getting their information from, not from anything on the TV or a, a news source. I, I, I don't think it's helpful. I, unfortunately think that's how most people get their news now they get it from facebook and they get sucked into things they go down these rabbit holes we have people making crazy documentaries about things that are totally untrue that are, are not reputable reputable voices in that field don't listen to those things like listen to the people that are have spent their life dedicated to this field of science this is like something like I, so fauci gets a lot of crap and but he's been doing the same thing for a long time mm -hmm. he's just he's just plodding away being like hey yep here show me the data that has been done in the right way scientifically yeah uh, not just peer-reviewed but like yeah it cor uh corrected uh what's the word i'm looking for uh i don't know you have to make P sure your study is uh it's peer reviewed but not just peer reviewed but like because the people are talking about the um like some of the hydroxychloroquine stuff was peer reviewed but then they're finding out look it's this trial wasn't done right correctly yes you have so he but the general public cannot read a a research study oh, no, no, no. and I, understand sample size and understand validity and reliability and the method of the study and like that but this is why someone like right Fauci so that's what i'm helpful. saying so 
that it is really hard for ge- the general public. I mean, I am I am almost to the finish line of a master's degree in science and I just now feel like I am confident in picking up something, being able to read it, being able to analyze the data that's in it and be able to say from reading that study if I would trust making a a medical decision based mm-hmm. on the quality of the study that I'm provided. I think it takes a lot of practice. It's not something that you can just do. You can't just teach yourself how to read these things. So having someone that you trust that is very well versed in that, you cannot believe Karen on Facebook who thinks she's now a public health expert because she sells essential oils. Like these people are not trained in science. Science is always changing. That's another thing I, I don't think people understand. It's okay that science changes. I was telling kids yeah, at, this is helpful. yeah, I was telling kids at my school in February, like you guys cannot wear surgical masks to school. I know this thing is scary and I know this is before it was confirmed to be in the States. Right. So we had zero cases in the States, but China was reporting on it and it was scary. We were all like kind of bracing ourselves for it. We were all trying to learn about it. And the data that we had up till that point we can pull hundreds of articles where surgical mask or cloth mask have been tested and they do, they have a potential to harbor bacteria. So in gen, this is in, in general, in, yes, in general. And when not worn properly by people that are trained to wear a mask properly, such as a healthcare provider or some kind of um, field where you have practiced learning how to properly put on and take on and take off a mask, um, you have the potential to expose yourself to um, disease causing, you know, illness causing pathogens. So and, it's and expose other people to them and more expose than other you people, would think. right? So we were telling people, don't do it. Like we honestly did not understand that this was a droplet carried virus that um, for some time after that. Yes. Yeah. So what happens is we then go back on that and we say, actually, we were wrong. We actually have a lot of data showing masks are doing wonderful things to help mitigate the spread of this virus. And despite the other problems they might cause. Totally. So we need to we need to address the the um, risks that mask wearing has. Those are still there. Mask wearing still has some risk to it so if we can teach people how to do that properly which is why i'm saying good messaging coming that's Mm -hmm. consistent from the top down we from the beginning we should have been teaching people hey properly wear a mask it has to cover both your nose and your mouth it does and it has to go down to your chin and you should wash your hands before you take off a mask, you should take off the mask, either throw it away or fold it up and put it in a bag or somewhere where you can store it properly. Then go wash your hands because now your hands have bacteria and viruses that were on that mask and you can potentially spread that to others or you can infect yourself by touching your face. So I think what was happening was so many people were like, first you told us no, then now you're telling us to do this. What's going on? This Which is-, is a common complaint with same with like global warming, like it'll get cold and people are like, you told us it was warm. It's like, okay, it's more complex than those two words. 
but it's still happening the thing we're talking about yeah or we're we're learning more about learning the way more, that it's and it's actually yeah. when it gets hotter it's also going right. to get colder and so it has the medical field is very comfortable with change it's called evidence-based practice it's changing all the time the stuff that we were doing to people 50 years ago for a headache is different than what we're doing now for a headache it doesn't mean that the stuff now you know we're hypocrites because we're not doing what mm -hmm. we did 50 years ago it's because science has changed we've learned more we've adapted once you know better you do better and we are constantly knowing things better and we're going to change our practice to reflect that so um yeah i think that's been the hardest thing so going back to it everybody find a very good public health expert or a public health organization that you trust so oh, here's the hard thing with that though like you've got the the guy who owned the the urgent care in Arizona oh. or whatever. Here's but here's the things people are saying. He's a doctor and he says this is all hooey. So how does a person who doesn't know medicine? Yeah, you also had that nurse that turned out to be bogus that was claiming she was the whistleblower on the whole thing. She was at that hospital in Georgia or I Texas. Hear about this. Oh yeah, there was a nurse that was on social media saying like i'm blowing the whistle on this it's all fake blah 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 then find people that are doing it so right now with covid f talk to nurses that are working in the covid units working in the icu right now um i feel super privileged to be very close to all my friends still um at the hospitals that i worked at and that includes physicians and nurses and um, infectious disease doctors. So I have been in a circle of people that are, you know, telling me what it's like and, and making things very real and confirming what I'm reading. And, and, um, so I think it's all about the circle that you're in. And if you don't have someone in your circle, that's like that, um, go find someone like find someone, a, a neighbor, a friend of a friend who's in that field and and ask them ask them if it's fake ask, ask them if it's um you know i mean i i have nurses that are friends of mine they've been a nurse for 30 years they've worked in intensive care their whole career they've they've been through you know i worked through h1n1 we I, we've worked through so many really I, zika virus uh gosh oh we ebola virus that was super scary um but you 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 can't just dismiss the fact that people that have been doing this their whole career are now saying like, I've never seen anything like this. This is scary. People are coming in totally healthy. They're having shortness of breath and they end up coding 30 minutes later. They're gone. Like that. Those are the stories I'm hearing from people that are working right now as we speak in those, in those units. Yeah. It's so hard. Cause it, it goes back to, if you have someone who's operating in bad faith, like the doctor from Arizona, who's saying he's sharing numbers, right? And if you listen and you don't know what he's saying, it sounds like, oh my yeah. gosh, this is. I been also think we shouldn't vil vilify everybody too, because I don't want to say like he knowingly is spreading disinformation and misinformation. I think, I think some people can just be very swayed by their own biases, and we all have to be aware of our own biases. So if you have a political um, sway towards the party that is saying one thing, like challenge yourself enough to realize 
I am bent towards this way? Am I just reinforcing what I want to believe or what I think is true now? Or am I really looking at this from like a lens of unbiased information? And this is why I think it's important to listen to public health officials who are not in elected positions. They're not trying to please Please people. people. Yeah. So in this case, it's a really hard situation Mm -hmm. because the economy it sucks and yes. that sucks for everyone and it's brutal totally and you have to acknowledge think, that but at the right. same time any any good public health official right now is saying and not but like it is terrible for the economy it is which is terrible for people which is terrible for people it's terrible for mental health it doesn't negate the fact that this is a very very dangerous virus that needs to be met appropriately and here's the thing if we were all doing our part and that's coming down from the individual citizen of this country all the way up to the top if we were all doing our part and were consistent in our practices and our messaging if we could rally around the experts and and do as they're suggesting i think we would have our economy would be doing much better now because we wouldn't have faced this level of disease mm-hmm. yeah it's not so gonna we, go away by ignoring it it's right it's gonna get worse it's just gonna, gonna get drag worse. it out yep yep all right tell people that the name of, of that gal and then you have the other guy you like too right yeah so um her name is jessica Malati rivera she was actually just on cnn as like a little guest she had like a little guest slot how do you spell Malati? i know that's why i have a hard time with it so Malati is m-a-l-a-t-y rivera r-i-v-e-r-a um, and that is her Instagram name, Jessica Malati Rivera. Um, I kind of st- wish it was Milady. Milady Rivera. <laughs> She's great. Her stories are great. Um, I just, I have really appreciated um, the effort she is making to try and get like good messaging out to people that's um, science-based, evidence-based uh so that people can be making educated decisions. And I just actually thought about this while we were talking. I was talking about the stories I'm hearing. I in no way want to imply that people need to be, you know, living in fear or terrified of this virus. I think it's all about being responsible. I think it's about really understanding like your bubble of people that you're in contact with and, and being willing to communicate about, you know, I mean, we've, we've done this as, as much as we can, like be, being really honest with people like, Hey, I'm going to go see my parents this weekend. So if you don't want to see us for a little while, that's totally fine. And trying to break it up and just being smart. It's all, of, yeah, you can't go do every single thing you want to do, but if you slow it down a little bit and you're conscientious and you're responsible and you're communicating with people and letting people make decisions on what they feel comfortable with without shaming them or making them feel bad for doing something that they think that they need to do to stay healthy and keep their family healthy. Like, I think that's, that's how yeah, we move forward in all this. Everyone's got to find their own way, but carefully, like, carefully, responsibly, you, you know, you can have a small group of people that you're all trying to kind of see and not try to see a bunch of other people or I mean, everyone's situation is going to be different. Right. Don't throw a house party. Yeah. Don't, and being aware of your own health like, you know what I'm saying? It's risks just, and yeah. 
It, yes, stuff. be aware of your health mm-hmm. or others' health risks. Others' health risks that you're in contact with, yeah. Because that's a huge part of this. Or whole other thing. contacts that you might not know their health risk at the store. I think. Yes. I think a lot of people are going out there and being like, "I'm healthy. I'm young. Like I, I don't even see my grandma. I can go party and." But like, okay, what about the dude at the Seven Eleven where you just bought your smokes and like sneezed on him, right? Like, I mean people aren't taking into consideration and that that is i have to say that is what i'm hearing the highest rates in our icus and our hospitals are right now it's it's people in like the 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 food industry the mm-hmm. grocery industry so it's people that don't have the choice to work from home who really are out there working hard every day and coming into a, con- a lot of uh, contact with a lot of people on mm-hmm. a daily basis and yeah. probably people that don't have access to things like masks and you know sanitary conditions and stuff a lot hey everyone if you're already supporting the show through patreon thank you so very much if you aren't yet i wanted to let you know that you can now become a patron and support the show for as little as five dollars a month becoming a patron can provide you with a variety of perks including access to additional content like song lyric breakdown episodes q a episodes where you can submit questions for me to answer additional conversation episodes that won't show up in the public feed and access to our discord board where we're building community and engaging in deeper conversations around the show here's a sneak peek at some additional patron only content Somehow I knew I lost something. Uh, someone brought it up, this idea that it, it it's a way of getting at the whatever, the, like the problem of life in some sense, right? Like you can call it original sin, you can call it whatever. Like it's, there's that, that weird wrongness that is part of life. Like that, okay, there's so much beauty and then there's like something is kind of also really weird and hard and... right. And maybe, and and you could make an argument that that's just, that comes out of looking at things in a non-helpful way too, which you could do. But I think we all know that feeling, right? Like I lost that. It's, I knew I lost something. I don't know what it was. I'd say this is an example of being pushed by like my friend, by circumstance, by like, of having to try to learn how to write this way better. I think it's a good example of me learning how to write in story form which i think is very powerful if you're digging this podcast and want to join me and others like you in our pursuit of the good the true and the beautiful then joining us on patreon is the best way to do it sign up today at patreon.com forward slash carry the fire pod all right let's get back to the show i hope there's a part where you're going to talk to me about puppies and funny things and not just serious stuff like death the puppies come later (laughs) Um, you gotta do the bad stuff first. Okay. All right. We have another patron question. So this has to do, this is the coping with me (laughs) section of the Yes. Finally, Um, someone's asking some good questions. So this is about coping with me being out on the road. Uh, Austin says, what are the best ways you found to cope with family life on your side of the relationship while Dustin's out on the road? So I have learned, this has been a long time coming. I did not realize these things early on. So I have realized that I need to plan fun things with my kids while Dustin's gone. Um, So, and now that they're older, that's gone much easier. So when Dustin's gone, I usually plan some kind of like camping trip or take my kids somewhere and we do something fun. I have found that it, um, 
it breaks up the time it gets it gives the kids something to look forward to like it's not all bad that dad's gone because we're gonna go do this really fun thing um it gives me a little bit of break of the monotony of like just the grind of every day being um so all you single moms out there and single dads I have so much respect for you I I feel like um when Dustin's gone it makes me feel like I don't know how people do that every day so hard so so hard um so I think especially with working full-time and three kids and sports and I've been in school the last couple of years too. Um, it's been a lot um, when you leave, but I think breaking it up, vacations, fun things. I spend a lot of time with my parents, which is great. And my brothers, um, the time that we do have, which isn't much, but <laughs> we, we do live in a dumbly expensive area, but it's cause all of our families here. So. Yeah. We tried leaving once and then we realized that we loved our family more than we loved not paying to live here. Hmm. Yeah. Did that we also like the question? sun. And the beach. Yeah. Matthew asks, uh, as Dustin has moved through a deconstruction, reconstruction of his faith and ideas, how's that been for you? Did you move through that process kind of in line with Dustin or has your process been significantly different? There were times when I went through the, this with my partner uh, and my partner thought I was going, quote, too far, and it made for interesting conversations. I don't know if interesting was supposed to be emphasized there, but that's how I read it. <laughs> uh, no, it was not in line. Um, I think you talked about this on your episode. I, I've with... talked about how poor, okay. poorly I started this <clears throat> process before. Yeah. but Not great. Super scary for me. I... I um... Oh, man. Dustin is not the best communicator, hmm. uh, which has been really cool to um, watch you do this podcast and be awesome at it. Um, I could, yeah, I, I tend to do a lot of like internal processing and then it ends up looking from the outside like I'm being flippant about large ideas, but I've, but there's been all this stuff going on inside. Yes, you have a you have historically given me like a one statement comment that's like so far out of left field that I don't even know what to do with it. And then you just act like it's no big deal. And I don't know what to do. Um, so since that moment, uh, it has been really scary. Um, it makes me feel uneasy. I don't like being on a different page. Um but what I think it's the, the good that's come from it is like it's challenged me to really kind of think through what I think and it's just challenged me. I think I've grown a lot. I think you've helped me see a lot of things um, from a different perspective that I wouldn't have seen otherwise, which is like, I think, grown my faith. Um, but I have learned through this that like things aren't as simple as I wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and I became a Christian later in life. So I didn't, I don't, didn't grow up with like a lot of the maybe baggage that some people have that grew up in like a very strict Christian home. Um, 
my parents were very open for me to explore what I wanted to figure out in life. And that is interesting. And then, but you had enough time in a Christian setting that that kind of reset. Well, yeah, because you think like, I I figured it out. Like, I figured it out. Anything other than this is not right. And and I figured it out. This is awesome. And and there's a lot of security in that. It feels good. It feels mm. safe and consistent. And um, so when that kind of got broken up and you started talking to me about things that I was like, I don't, I don't know how to answer this. I think it was um, really good for me. And I think I look back now and I'm kind of embarrassed that I was like as sure as I was about so many things. And I think part of that's just like getting older and maturing and being like, yeah, I don't have it all figured out. That's not. No, no. I I feel like a lot of times it goes the other way. Oh, okay. (laughs) You've you've seen that too. But here's something that I think it exposed. Well, first I'll say something I learned uh, that, I should have done better is I wish I would have seen and understood the way that the stuff that I started talking about would feel like it was pulling the rug out from under you in so many different ways. Cause I didn't see that. And I think that's a, so it's a warning to everyone who is like going through some kind of deconstruction that, it will feel that way to people that are close to you. Um, it's the nature of the way that most of us build our worlds. Like everything's kind of interconnected. And especially if you're part of a church or some kind of social group, a lot of times everything in there gets like tied as one thing. And so it gets, I don't know if you remember, there's a, um, Rob and Rob Bell's book, Velvet Elvis. I remember back when I read this, I was like, that's kind of interesting. And now I look back and I was like, that's actually really genius. Um, he talked about a lot of times, like faith is built like a brick wall. Whereas like, if you remove some of these bricks, the whole wall is going to fall down. Mm. So you can't, you can't mess around with these bricks. Like, all, it's all got to stay mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what if it was like a trampoline? Whereas like, you take a spring out and it's like it still works fine mm. you put a new spring in over here yeah it's cool and you like also it's fun you bounce around on it even though i hate trampolines because they broke my daughter's arm um <laughs> but um yeah i think a lot of times and this is good to examine before it comes to like a head you are in a situation where so say for like us we were in a situation where me talking about questioning uh whether uh the bible is supposed to be looked at as an inerrant document uh basically a magical thing that all is saying the same thing perfectly me questioning something like that is tugging on your feelings of like does he love me still is he gonna do something crazy now because he doesn't think that the bible is inerrant because all the time you're being told this is all one thing. And if you change one thing, it's all going to fall mm-hmm. apart. Um, so I wish I would have seen that because I would have approached it very differently and reassured you 
hey, this doesn't change the way I feel about you at all, and it's not going to change what, like, we're on this journey together, but, um... I think there's a fear, too, of, like, as, because faith is such a big part of people's lives, and especially part of people's marriage, Mm -hmm. um, that it feels a little bit like, holy shit, this is the thing that, like, makes us forever go on different paths and it will never come back and i think realizing i don't know i always have this thought of like all your crazy things that you've done (laughs) like it's like we we're all like a roller coaster right like we change we grow we think things we don't think things we think something new we don't we i don't know i feel like it that's we're always like changing in certain Unless ways. we're not, and that's worse, in my opinion. Okay, all right, but, yeah. But I think most pretty healthy people are, are even in really subtle ways, they're changing and stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean that has to be in two different directions. It's making me think back to the medical thing. Like, when you don't change with new information, it's like you're still, like, bloodletting. Totally. To We're still people. giving like, people lobotomies totally. and stuff. Yeah, But no. that's, like, what you do with your life, too, if you don't. If you're not open to yeah. new things breaking into you. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, yeah, you, you didn't do a great job and that's nope. okay. I'll forgive you for that. Thank but you. it was super hard. Sometimes it still is super hard because you've, I feel like, I mean, we've had to make hard decisions about, you know, going to church, a certain church or whatever, something that you feel comfortable with, something I feel comfortable with, something that we're comfortable with our kids going to, um, it, it definitely complicates things. It would be so easy if it was just like, yeah, we just do this thing. However, is that just giving ourselves a lobotomy? Are we just doing the same thing because it feels good and safe and we're not changing or challenging ourselves? I don't know. Just it's hard. Yeah. Thank you for sticking, sticking it out. Mm-hmm. With my crazy ass. All right. Brian asks, Shadley, as a chaser of adventure. <gasps> ooh. I don't know. Someone read my Instagram profile. Oh, is that? I don't know. I feel like I have something like that on my Instagram. (laughs) I feel like I should probably change that. (laughs) Sounds really dumb. (laughs) As a a chaser of adventure, can you think of any moments in your life where you felt like you had found true beauty, whether it be experiential, visual, or something else? Oh, man. There's so many things here I could talk about. Talk about a few. Okay. So I definitely am super drawn to like the outdoors I have I think a lot of people do I think it's a like a primal thing but I I definitely am like drawn to water Mm -hmm. so lakes rivers streams the ocean like it's super grounding to me and um beautiful and my personality is one that does not slow down often and my brain doesn't slow down Mm -hmm. and um it's actually something that's really hard for me to do and probably I need to definitely get better at but that those are the times where I'm able to slow down it just happens naturally I'm not like thinking about it it just happens and it it's very um I don't know it's very beautiful and then I would say the other craziest like true beauty moment is delivering a baby I was I was like where is she going if she's not going there yeah man that's like there is something just so cool about that moment it's such a crazy thing where it's like the mo the moment right before 
is the worst. You're saying your own baby or... I'm I guess saying you, my own baby. Yes. Also beautiful. Other people deliver. Oh, just totally. That's different, great. Different. different. But I'm saying like like legit euphoria, cra- yeah. the craziest feeling in that moment where you like lift your baby up and you're like, oh, this is my baby. I don't know. I can't... You, you can only, you only know what I'm talking about if you've had that happen. There, It's pretty cool. And I think it's cool being there for people to like support them in that moment. That's happened. I've been privileged enough to kind of be a, like a, a, a pseudo doula for a couple friends, which has been very, very cool for me to watch, um, and support from an outside. makes me really excited for our girls to have babies. I hope, I hope they have babies. Do you want to say anything about natural birth stuff? Yeah, we can um, talk about it. Yeah, so I I have this super rad friend that I've been friends with since seventh grade who has gone on to go down this crazy journey of her own, and she's now a midwife. And um, at the time that I got pregnant with our first daughter, Sailor, she was in... Oh, she was just a doula at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, not just a doula, doulas are the jam. Uh, but she was a doula at the time and, um, she really started talking to me about a different perspective on childbirth than I had been taught in nursing school or seen in nursing school. I never worked on a labor and delivery department, but, um, I definitely, you know, had to do that in school and, um, there's a way of doing it. And still that, that, that method is very magical and in its own way and, um, beautiful, but she kind of opened my eyes up to, uh, some, I came at it from more of like a, a scientific, like a, like a data driven way of like, you know, there's, there's some elements that are very, very, um, convincing of like this the data behind natural childbirth and the decrease in c-section rate the decrease in um uh rates of pitocin which is the medication they use for induction um and to increase like the progress of labor which can then increase uterine contractions which then puts stress on the baby so it's like just this whole like cascade of events that can happen with our normal interventions with birth, what we would say are like in Western medicine are like normal birth interventions for anybody having a baby, which almost are in some ways rushing the body to do something. Yeah. And I don't think anybody's like maliciously rushing to deliver the baby. It's just not a vast conspiracy. No, no. I just think it's, it's one way of doing it that has a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people pushing back on it and saying, is this really the best way to do this? Like at a large level, stepping back and saying, are we treating pregnancy and giving a birth? Like it is a disease, right? Like a, like a health illness or Mm -hmm. health concern that we need to like intervene on. Or do we trust that this is a natural process that just needs maybe a little support? There are definitely things that happen there have been things that have happened to very close friends of ours that thank goodness we have, you know, modern medicine the way we do for Mm -hmm. childbirth. Um, But 
I think that part of the beauty of my experiences came from doing it with, you know, being able to move around and, um, you know, being able to get up and walk around af- right after the baby was born. And um, then with Lucy, our youngest, we got to have her at home. And that was one of the coolest things ever. I don't know. It's really cool to like wake up in the morning after just having a baby and be in your own bed. Mm-hmm. And there's such a range of options. For instance, with you, like, our first kid you had in the hospital, but we had a midwife and a doula, which uh, since is not an option anymore in Orange County. Well, it's of, coming back. Okay. I mean, some bullshit, but yeah, you've got politics that play into part and, um, but, uh, but we were in a hospital cause you felt like I, I want to try to do this naturally, but I also, I, I want to be close to, to medical stuff in case something goes mm-hmm. wrong. And, uh, with the next one, we also were in a hospital. Um, well, she almost came in the yeah, car, she almost came in the car. <laughs> which was a large reason why we decided the third one's probably going to be better if we just stay at home. Yeah, but <laughs> we're still like we know we're close to hospitals. We had a midwife right. experience there and a doula, and um, we we felt comfortable with that setup each time, whatever that was. That's not to say I did not think through every single scenario and our route to the hospital, if anything mm-hmm. happened, I mean, I, I, you know, being a nurse, I still had to think through all that stuff, but totally. I, I felt that, you know, we could do these things safely and there was enough to convince me that it was worth tr- trying. Yeah. I guess I'm saying like you can find a mix of this stuff that that's helpful for you. And I just think it's helpful for people to know there are options um besides just the standard medical mm-hmm. i go to the hospital and they do the things they normally mm-hmm. do and even nurses like nurses that i'm friends with that work in labor and delivery like even th- they are trying to learn more about how to support these practices in the hospital because i think as as information gets out there and more and more people are talking about unmedicated birth home birth um, all these things that are other options than w- what other people might thought. I think, I think people are kind of realizing like, Oh, there's an, there's another way to do this. That's also really great mm-hmm. and helpful. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Last question. When did you know that you'd become a crazy plant lady? Oh, someone knows I'm a crazy. Plant. No, I asked you this. Oh, Oh, <laughs> Oh man. Okay. I think back to, do you remember outside of our first apartment when we first got married, I had a plant. I don't even know what kind of plant it was. It was in a pot. In South County? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember? And like, no. I could not keep it alive. I think I replaced it a couple times. I remember a lot of plants dying. Yeah. I really struggled, but I always was very into plants. Like I loved them. I, uh, my grandma was a, is still a, an amazing gardener. My mom was a great gardener. So I was like, what the heck is wrong with me? And, um, so I decided, <laughs> I decided I th- would do best if I just got one plant and then I really researched the plant and like, what does it need? What kind of light, what kind of soil, what kind of, and I really just focused on that one plant. And then I, 
once that plant stayed alive for a while and I was doing really good and it was doing well, then I would get a second plant, a different kind of plant. And I would learn about that mm -hmm. one. And so pretty soon I feel like I start, cause once you get the hang of it, you're like, Oh, I can kind of, I feel like I can kind of read my plants. You know, you get to where you're like, ah, I can see something. I still can't. You, you're always like, Oh, that plant is not happy. I'm like, really? All right. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I feel like it's very obvious now. I'm like, oh, this is not good. I need to do something about this. Um, but then it's one, like one of those things where once you, that starts, then you start having all this cool appreciation for different types. And then you see one somewhere that you're like, holy crap, I've never seen a plant like this. And I definitely need to buy one. <laughs> so, yeah, I I have enjoyed I have enjoyed plants. I I enjoy that you have lots of plants in our house. Good. I'm glad you enjoy it. It's great. It's good for the air and it makes me happy. <laughs> Do you have any consistent practices or habits that are helpful for you? Oh man. Here's what I will say. <laughs> Here are the <laughs> habits and practices I wish I could stay consistent with. Number one, I am not a morning person at all. I never have been. I, I always thought it would happen as I got older. Like, you know, feels like older people wake up at 4.30 in the morning and they make coffee and then they sit and drink their coffee and then they get ready for work and it's like this peaceful thing. I've literally never had that my whole life. I've tried. When it, I've done it, there is definitely something cool about it, but it it, I, it extracts something from me and no, I can't do I, consistency. The whole time I'm trying to enjoy it, I'm just like, uh, I don't, I don't like this. This doesn't, I don't like it at all. <laughs> Even when I was having to wake up super early to go to work in the hospital, I have to leave at like 545. It hurts. My whole body hurts. Driving yeah. there hurts. Even if I go to bed at nine o'clock at night, it was just, oh, the worst. Okay. So, um, I would really like to get better at consistently waking up early and working out every day. Exercise has been huge for me. I will say that yeah. even though it's not consistent, I learned that like, if I'm not exercising, I do not feel good. I'm not, I'm more moody. I am less patient with my kids and I'm less nice to you. I, I think that's been huge. I, I'd say you're, you're not like militant, but I'd say you're very self-aware about how you feel in relation to exercise. I can now. feel it like very tangibly. Mm -hmm. It feels, and what's cool is I think as I've gotten more aware of how I feel, and I think part of that's coming from like going for a long period of time and getting back in shape mm -hmm. and, and really taking awareness of like, how do I feel when I like feel good like this? I can start to feel myself like coming down and not doing well with that. And then come back up after I like get back into the hang of things again. Um, but what's great is like, after I work out, I am so happy. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. It's like very real. And I feel so, so much more Endorphins feel like are real. alert and all those things. And so unfortunately I feel like because of my personality, I get like, I put too many things on my plate and then I end up not having time. I have tried since COVID that if I wake up in the morning and I just put on workout clothes that I will eventually work out that day. Cause but it, that goes two ways though. What? Cause they're also just comfy to 
slothin no i feel i don't love like wearing <laughs> workout clothes okay. like, i don't love wearing a sports bra let's be real they're okay, tight that's true that's true and i feel like a good pair of jeans is just as good as leggings and i don't yeah okay. there's a lot of things happening here right. in this conversation anyway <laughs> but what, what i've noticed as as you can see tonight i put on these workout clothes mm -hmm. and it is now midnight and I'm still in my workout clothes. <laughs> so I will be not working out in these today. That's what I thought of when I thought. I'm working out. Me. Yeah. Um, I, tr I do try and take like, I haven't been good at it since we've been, you know, working from home and in the pandemic. But like when I was going into work, I really would try and take like a moment out of each day and like walk and get out of my office and walk around and just be outside. And I think that's very helpful for me too. Mm -hmm. It's really Science cool. to says so as well. I know. <gasps> I know. If anybody's more interested about that, um, what's that book I read that was so cool? I can't remember the name of it. Uh, dang it. Maybe you can link to it later. That's okay. really cool. It's all about how like nature. It's like scientifically studied. Yes. Like what it does to our physiology. Oh yeah, I had interesting and our stuff. biochemistry. They were studying people who would like who went backpacking for like a week, and then they had like boosted levels of a bunch of things for like another week after their home. And yeah. It, so it really the conclusion of the book is what is it called? They didn't, they, a lot of the it, nature they don't, fix. They the nature fix. Fully know why, but they can tell that something's happening. Yeah, but they the conclusion of the book is you you should be spending like a significant amount of time outdoors like get trees dirt grass plants at least every three weeks and overnight is ideal mm. but so, anything is better than nothing. anything is better than nothing. even even like um there's like cities in japan or like um, communities in japan where they've built like it's super urban but they've built these like almost like central park but super condensed like mm -hmm. uh you know like when you go to like a arboretum or something and you go down yeah, into yeah. it's kind of like that it's like super oh, dense like cool. sidewalks that go through like little waterfall mm. scenes and stuff and even people that have access to that and are use, utilizing them regularly are showing the same physiological effects of being out in regular natural nature mm -hmm. which is cool cool that was really fun hon. thanks for doing this you're welcome i'm, I'm really excited for people to hear this I mean, I hope I didn't just waste their time. You don't get to say if you did or not. Nope. I'll never know. All right. Bye. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CarryTheFirePod. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers, Chris Reeves, Tony Panaro, Sam George, Reed Duchess, Thomas Fortcourt, Shamir Hassan, Amy Armstrong, Luis Rivera, Gabe Munoz, Cameron Lane, Hamza Bebehana, Michael Maitland, Adam Collins, Susanna Coleman, Ian Hunt, John Diego, Jess Card, Mark Weiss, Brianna Webb, John Buchan, Denise Sugita, Colin Hawthorne, Brian Weisbecker, Josh Malara, Eric Gonzalez, Matthew Alcon, and Tiffany Payne. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time.